1: And welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee and with me is the inimitable Paul Doroshenko.
0: I think you should call it Driving Law with Kyla Lee and Paul Doroshenko.
1: Are you like officially coming on as an official co-host for all official purposes?
0: I've been reluctant to, but I really don't like the way the introduction goes.
1: All right. Well, now it is Driving Law with Kyla Lee and Paul Doroshenko.
0: But I don't want to be on every show.
1: Well, see, this is your problem.
0: Well, I, I think sometimes you have guests who are really good and I don't necessarily need to come on to voice my opinion. I have a valid opinion on a lot of things, but I mean, there's sometimes you've got superstar guests and you yeah, know, but maybe it's,
1: it's not live with Regis and Kelly sometimes.
0: That's true. That's true. But there's times that I don't think you want me there. I think you're a very good interviewer. And I think there's times that you don't want me there because I'll start mansplaining or something like that. And it's, I already, I already do that. I think it's
1: very rare that I accuse you of mansplaining.
0: That's true because I usually accept that you're correct. And so, I'm, <laughs>
1: yeah. well, uh, I have three interesting topics for us today. And I thought that we would start with something that I covered recently in a blog post that a lot of people don't know about sort of a change that the BC government quietly slipped into the motor vehicle act when nobody was looking
0: Okay, so <laughs> he
1: says I, I with know, I still
0: don't know what you're talking about because you don't necessarily tell me.
1: I'm talking about the change to the, the dispute process for a 24-hour prohibition for drugs.
0: Aha! Uh-huh, yeah. Well, this was something we complained about for a long time because Rewind, there was complained. there was no no dispute process. The only way you could dispute it was going to BC Supreme Court. And that's incredibly expensive. And I, I, I think even the judges in B.C. Supreme Court all thought that it was ridiculous.
1: They did. Like literally every judicial review for a 24-hour I've run, it's been the same thing. Why are wh- the prohibitions over? Why is this important? Why does this matter?
0: There's good reasons that it mattered because it goes on people's driving records and it and it wrecks their life.
1: Oh, totally. Because you it can...
0: says 24-hour driving prohibition, drugs.
1: Drugs. And it doesn't even say Cannabis or something that yeah. is less serious drugs it could be fentanyl
0: yeah doing lines of cocaine on the dash of your car
1: that would be really hard to do <clears> while <throat> the car's in motion
0: i'm sure there's people who can do it i'm sure I, there's yeah, people who I've, have done i've it.
1: actually never used cocaine so i don't know like how that would work
0: you just have to turn all the, all assume, the fan <laughs> off i bed. assume
1: it's a powder right <clears throat> so yeah.
0: i don't know I've, I've, I've never used it either
1: well, you, you, I assume you know it's a powder. You have defended cocaine cases.
0: Sure, and I I, I watched Scarface.
1: Yeah, okay. So I haven't seen Scarface.
0: Oh, oh yeah, no. it's a You, you should see it. I, I, won't, I will certainly with, not say it's a great film.
1: I watched that one with Johnny Depp. What's the one with Johnny Depp? doesn't matter. I have no idea. Anyway. Okay. Anyway, the point is um, that we complained about this because every time the judges would be like, I don't get it. Why is this important? Why are you here? This prohibition has come and gone and and your client is now complaining about it and I would say well this is the only mechanism to deal with it there's no dispute process with the superintendent of motor vehicles which is inherently absurd because they have a a dispute process for a 24-hour for alcohol so you'd think that they're equipped to deal with it so in response to I guess having to hear the same complaint from the court and from me over and over uh I got what I wanted
0: no, you didn't really get what you no. wanted because what we wanted was a robust review provision where you could actually challenge the evidence. And in BC Supreme Court, at least the police would have to prepare an affidavit and file that, and then you could challenge the evidence. Yeah. Uh, and the and the, you know, the court could do a review of whether or not it was appropriately served and yeah. make that determination.
1: I and, mean, you you say what we wanted was a robust review process, and the first thing I thought was dare to dream. Yeah, I know. I mean, but it's so disingenuous, the the review process that they created. So here's what you can dispute your 24-hour for drugs on. If you had the right to ask a police officer to do a standardized field sobriety test and the police officer didn't administer the test, then you could ask the superintendent of motor vehicles to revoke the 24 hour for drugs.
0: And of course, you're not told this. No. The police officer is not telling you. And by the way, if you demand a standardized field sobriety test, then um,
1: I have, to, I do have
0: to do it. And if you don't, then I have to revoke it.
1: Yeah. You and, know? you know, that's that's absolutely ridiculous. It's ridiculous that the review is limited to whether or not you got a test, um, not what the results of that test were like you could get the test you could pass the test they could still give you the 24-hour prohibition for drugs and the superintendent of motor vehicles under the legislation as it's written would still have no choice but to confirm the prohibition because you got the test
0: yeah so it's ridiculous it's a hollow right you can be you can have absolutely no effect of any drug in your body this thing can be issued to you by a police officer and now they've created a review process, but the review process is meaningless.
1: Yep, and it's also a trap. Um, it's a trap because the BC Court of Appeal has ruled that if you do a standardized field sobriety test and an officer issues you a 24-hour prohibition for drugs, the results of that test are admissible and effectively are conclusive proof of the officer's grounds to believe your ability to drive was affected by a drug, barring my future challenge to the administration of the test and the evidence that comes out on that, but... um, You put yourself in a situation where you render the prohibition effectively unjudicially reviewable, if I could use that fake word.
0: But can you not just skip the whole superintendent's review process and go straight to BC Supreme Court still, just claiming that the underlying decision to issue the 24-hour driving prohibition for drugs was faulty in the first place
1: well this is where things get really legally interesting because the law related to judicial review is supervisory in nature so the court sitting on judicial review supervises the discretion exercised by a tribunal and the law has recognized that the police officer for the purposes of the 24 hour for drugs is a tribunal but also the superintendent of motor vehicles is a tribunal Now, the second law or the second aspect of the law in judicial review is that you have to exhaust all of your internal remedies before seeking judicial review. So theoretically, the government could argue as a bar to somebody bringing judicial review of a 24 hour for drugs that they didn't. You know, pursue their internal remedies, regardless of whether or not those remedies were available to them. In the same way that if you get an IRP and you don't dispute it in the seven days, there was that case I argued Spence, mm-hmm. where Mr. Spence had not disputed it in the seven days and he went to court and he said it wasn't properly sworn. The superintendent wasn't revoking prohibitions that weren't properly sworn because there was no statutory power to do that. And so as a result, um, essentially, he was caught in this weird limbo where he wouldn't have won with the superintendent and he couldn't win on judicial review because he didn't seek out a review from the superintendent.
0: So by virtue of the fact that you don't seek a review from the superintendent first, you're out of luck? Is that what you're saying?
1: Well, that's it's arguable. Now, it's also arguable, and I will argue, and I intend to argue the opposite, that because the superintendent's discretion on a review is limited to only one thing, where that's not the subject of judicial review and where the judicial review is taken from the decision of the officer roadside outside the scope of the superintendent's jurisdiction, that you can't use the absence of a tribunal's jurisdiction to bar judicial review.
0: So what you're saying is because there's, there's only one ground of appeal, the ground of appeal is meaningless for 90% of the people that you should be able to skip the superintendent's uh, tribunal because their review would not lead to a remedy in any event because it wasn't that ground of review? Is that?
1: Not just that their review wouldn't lead to a remedy, but that they would actually have no no authority, no statutory authority to decide the issue. The issue, issue
0: that you, okay. All right. So
1: there's no, there's no sort of, judicial review and no engagement of the tribunal's jurisdiction okay um but the second creepy factor about this and the thing that really irks me about these amendments is it changes something about the review process because if they're successful in taking their position that uh, you have to seek a remedy with the tribunal first You're never going to get to B.C. Supreme Court and have your judicial review hearing and argue all of that, you know, preliminary issue in front of a judge and then get a decision and have the decision be, no, you have to go to the superintendent. There's no extensions of the time limit to file for review of the 24 hour with the superintendent, which time limit is only currently seven days.
0: Okay, that's really, I, I. So you, I I can't I understand what you're saying.
1: So yeah. you basically have to file a meaningless review, conduct a meaningless review hearing, and seek judicial review of two decisions: the meaningless review decision in which you made no submissions because you couldn't engage the the authority of the tribunal, and then say, "Look, we tried and it didn't work, but we want to seek judicial review of the officer." And until the courts sort it out. That's effectively the path that everybody has to take. It's it's double the legal work and double the expense in filing fees for no good reason.
0: Is it the same disclosure that we see with a 24-hour for alcohol? Is that what we're yes. expecting?
1: Yes. So we are expecting on the reverse of the 24-hour for drugs um, document. It's the same face sheet, right? They just tr- check the box for drugs or check the box for alcohol. So
0: that hasn't changed the 24-hour
1: 215
0: no. notice hasn't changed. Okay. The
1: notice hasn't changed. And the reverse, the officer's report hasn't changed. A little tiny, like three by three post it sized square set of lines for the officer to fill in their report. Well, if the prohibition is to be based on whether or not the officer issued, or the review is to be based on whether or not the officer did the standardized field sobriety test, how are you going to fit that evidence into four lines that are three? inches by three inches
0: well there's new forms coming
1: we not know for that. 24 hours no but
0: there's a bunch of new forms for the new adp for drugs coming for early january there's new i've heard there's new irp forms coming there's probably new 24 hour forms coming it's probably the queen's printer is running their printastic uh, machines right now maybe it's all coming maybe which means there's going to be new uh new books for us to order yes New ticket books for us to order we order the the police ticket books from the queen's printer uh every year we order a bunch of them the uh, the police handy reference guide it's just a useful thing to have especially now that they included the demerits
1: yes but i i want to go back to the topic which is 24 hours for drugs and the dispute process regardless of whether or not there's a new form and we could speculate till we're blue in the face about what that form might say the current process that people are subject to doesn't allow for really any record to be disclosed upon which you can make your case.
0: Yeah, but you you can put in your own evidence.
1: Sure, you can put in your own evidence. But it's still, like, how do you know the case you have to meet by putting in your own evidence when all you get is the face of the report, a checkbox that says drugs, and then, you know, the officer's thing on the back being like, I offered him an SFST and he refused.
0: Well, I would encourage anybody who gets one right now to at least dispute it because the police will not, um, I don't think they've really been notified about no. all of their obligations under it. And what we find with 24-hour driving prohibitions is often enough the police officer never submits the thing or they submit it, six, submit it six months late and it's a lousy copy. And so I would encourage every everyone who gets one of these to dispute it.
1: Now, the last creepy thing about it, That I wanted to tell you about is that the seven day time limit to file for review is now not listed in the legislation itself. So it used to be right that a person may within seven days of being served a notice of prohibition apply for review with the superintendent of motor vehicles if it was for alcohol. Yeah. And for the ADP sections, it says <clears throat> a person may, within seven days of being served a notice of prohibition, da 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 da. Mm-hmm. And for the IRPs, a person may, within seven days, da 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 da. They changed the language for the twenty-four hour scheme to now say a person may within the prescribed number of days.
0: So you don't know what they are. Well, there's a regulation the somewhere. I know, for but it. if you're on the front of, if you're looking at the front of it, trying to figure out
1: yeah it's not gonna say it on the front. They
0: could change it to five days if they wanted they could change it to five time.
1: days they could change it to twenty four hours. they could change it to five hundred days
0: well, five hundred days I'd be okay with that file so would within, I file within <laughs> file
1: within years. like two and a half, two two and a half years yeah. no um, a year and a half I'm not good at math.
0: you're quite good at math
1: <laughs> anyway, sit and
0: do all those calculations all the time for people's blood alcohol concentration.
1: That's easy. I have a calculator yeah well. <sighs> Um, Anyway, it's, it's creepy, though, to leave it to being prescribed because it can be changed at any point without notice. And all of a sudden you go in, yesterday it was seven days and today it's three.
0: I'll tell you, when I moved to British Columbia in 1999, after I finished law school and I discovered ADPs, I was disturbed that the government would so cynically pass something that was so, to me, blatantly unfair. And, you know, I I had this sort of suspicion and anger started to develop with me and I I become more and more, you know, you might think that I have tinfoil on my head, but the further I get into it, the angrier I get about it. And the IRP scheme really pushed me over the top when it came out because it just still strikes me as so fundamentally unfair and designed to be unfair.
1: Well, and amended and, to make it more unfair and, over and over and over again.
0: And and just to try and pull, you know, just to try and pull a fast one on the court all the time. And it's so upsetting to me, particularly knowing what I know about the devices and knowing what I know about the procedure. Uh, and knowing what I know about the review process, I, I just it takes away confidence for me in in not not in the courts and and but in the legislative process, because I don't think that legislators intend that. I don't think they intend to pull this bullshit on people. Uh, I think it's the people who write the legislation who have a a bone to pick, and it just makes me so fucking angry.
1: Well, Paul, that's the perfect transition into our second topic because I'm about to talk to you about something that uh, the legislators had a bone to pick about an issue and didn't think through what some of the consequences at a practical level would be for people. And we're about to get into a real big mess. And uh, I mean, we've talked about aspects of Bill C-46 before. We've talked about random breath testing. We've talked about the ethical considerations. We've talked about all of that. But one thing we haven't talked about is what happens on December 18th to these cases that are in the pipes. So as you know, we have trials scheduled for impaired driving cases all through 2019.
0: We've had trials that were scheduled for 2018 that were adjourned because of crown adjournments that have now been put into 2019. Yes. A a number of them where the crown they didn't have time they there was no court time they didn't have a witness for whatever reason you know uh, two weeks before the trial date or a week before the trial date the crown was adjourning it until next year until a new legal scheme is in place.
1: Yes and that wasn't their intention.
0: No I'm not saying that it was I'm just saying like uh, the unfairness of that
1: so the question becomes and and you know we just finished a a portion of a trial it's going to be adjourned to some date yet to be determined we're in the middle of an impaired driving trial and the law about the admissibility of breath sample readings and um various procedural issues at the trial disclosure all of those things is about to substantially change certain things that were defenses, no longer become defenses, the elimination of, you know, bullish drinking defenses, that type of thing. And so the question is,
0: and evidentiary considerations too: what you need and what you would, what you would be searching for to defend your client. Um, and what evidence would, you would need at a certain period of time.
1: Yep. So how, you know, how to overcome presumptions. Exactly. Yeah. All of that is about to change substantially. And who does it change for? Does it change for everybody arrested after December 18th? Does it change for everybody whose trial commences after December 18th? Or does it change for everything after December 18th?
0: Well, we talked about this back when the legislation was was tabled, that there was some transition uh, provisions in there because um, Well, the history is sort of important here. In 2008, the Conservatives passed C2, which got rid of evidence to the contrary, which led to nobody knowing what evidence they had to call in impaired driving trials. And like days after that legislation came into place, there was people running these arguments across the country. And it took, I don't know, how long did it take till, what is Dingley or something? Dingley,
1: I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's, I call it Dingley. Supreme Court of Canada 2012.
0: Yeah. So from 2008 to 2012, chaos, which came out at the same time as uh, as the other one, the companion cases on St. the saint ange Tomas, yeah. So we had uh, courthouses following different procedure in uh, BC, like North Van was was applying things uh, retrospectively or re- retroactively, whatever, to, uh, or applying it to cases that were retrospective application, yeah. retrospective application, and the other courthouses it was sort of judge to judge. And uh, judges weren't following each other. It nope. was it was frustrating, and certain, and
1: chaos, and
0: did not enhance the uh, the reputation of the justice system. I can oh, tell no. you,
1: and also, you know, from a like a, a purely a defense lawyer's perspective, to advise your client, you know, what strategic decisions are you going to make in the trial. Um, depends on what defenses may or may not be available to you whether you ask a question on cross-examination say there's a liquor container found in the car and you know that that can be a nail in your coffin if you ask questions a certain way and a feather in your cap if you ask them another way
0: what upset me about that was that it's very easy to just say it starts as of this date it's only people arrested prior to this date. And, and don't be so petty about it and just yeah. deal with them over a couple of years. Like by 2012, it would have all been resolved. From 2008 to 2012, there'd be no cases left that were from 2008, before 2008. And the same thing with this. You know, it's just so easy to just say, you know what? It doesn't apply to any case before December 18th. It applies from midnight on December 18th on. And two, three years from now, all of those other cases would have run through the system, and that's it.
1: Yeah, but now, you know, I've got 12 months worth of trials scheduled from when this, you know, this law comes into effect. And for none of those trials, is it clear, except for a few provisions of the criminal code, like If you were a qualified technician before, you're a qualified technician after. If you were an approved instrument before, you're an approved instrument after. And the right that you have to certain pieces of disclosure, whereas before it was, you know, undefined what disclosure you were specifically entitled to and a process for making a disclosure application that is identified uh, in a transitional provision Um, as being uh, effective the date it comes into force and effect and having um, retrospective application to cases after that that came before, that happened before. Um, But that's like a substantive right as an accused you have to get certain information and have the court say, yes, you are entitled to this information because the criminal code says you're entitled to it, as opposed to going through this whole you know song and dance that we've had to go through dozens of times to be like, why can't I get this piece of information about the status message displayed on the instrument.
0: So it changes everything that you've got to do. You don't know whether or not you've got to, what you've got to do, because it's not really clear. There's transitional provisions, but they don't really cover everything, and it's not clear if they're applying to things from before in a lot of cases. And on top of that, you're also going to have, which we've talked about before, constitutional challenges to various parts of it. And the upsetting thing um, for me is that um, when I look at it, I I see cynical legislation written by um,
1: Mothers Against
0: Drunk Driving Driving, uh, that is designed to, again, pull the wool over the eyes of the courts because...
1: Well, it's uh, like literally somebody phoned up a drunk driving defense lawyer, like you or me, and said, okay, list me all the defenses in a drunk driving case. And then you did. And then they said, okay, we're going to legislate these out of existence.
0: Yeah, despite the fact that the defenses exist because there are people who are innocent who are charged with these offenses. Oh,
1: totally. And also some of the defenses exist but are almost never used.
0: So this was something that I've been harping about and I wrote something about it on our our, um, Vancouver criminal law uh, blog a little while ago that it just feels like... There's a group of people out there who have control over this, you know, writing this legislation and they full on want to see people convicted, innocent or guilty. And I'm just so concerned that we're going to see wrongful convictions. And it it is, you know, we have TV shows about wrongful convictions and there's, you know, people get all engaged in it. But the trend has been in my um, career with respect to impaired driving, uh, that we're moving more toward the likelihood of more wrongful convictions because of legislative changes, not because well, of the courts.
1: Maybe we should pitch a Netflix series about wrongful conviction and impaired driving. Oh, yeah.
0: Nobody would want to watch that. Everybody, you know, 90% of the population... I'd the, watch popu- the hell yeah, out of that. Yeah, yeah, you and I would. <laughs> 90% of the population just assumes that everybody who's... And it'll po- be
1: hosted by pirates.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to have it hosted by pirates because I like doing my... Pirate character more than uh, I like being a lawyer. Some days it's kind of fun, but uh, I can't stay in character long.
1: Um, no, but it's but, too
0: hard on my throat.
1: No, I I mean I agree with you. I'm as cynical about it as you, um, and I think we're only going to you know we have an overburdened court system. Um, look at look at you know a case we were dealing with recently where we wanted to set dates within a month for a continuation of a trial and we proposed five dates in the next six weeks and none of them the court could accommodate.
0: It was seven days. It wasn't seven. five. It was seven days. Seven.
1: Yeah. Well wow. okay. None of that. those
0: days the courts could accommodate. None
1: you know? the courts could and accommodate that was in the, next, and that was...
0: the two month next two month period. Yeah. January, February. Yeah. No dates available.
1: Which is of those days. Which is horrible. And if you think about having to litigate in every single impaired driving case, whether or not each aspect of C46, because it's such a huge, wide ranging, sweeping changes type bill, is going to apply retrospectively or prospectively, because you could have in the same case You could have the judge say, no, there's only prospective application of a bullish drinking defense, but there's retrospective application of the presumptions because it doesn't eliminate a defense to make it three hours. It only changes the way that defense plays out.
0: And we're going to see decisions from courts across the country. And, you know, somebody is going to render a decision in uh, uh, St. John's. Newfoundland and you know are they going to follow that decision in a a case that's heard uh, in Windsor Ontario are they going to follow that decision in Saskatoon are they going to follow it in 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 Prince George you know and they're going to render a decision in Prince George is it going to be followed in 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 Richmond or Victoria like yeah the the we're going to end up in another quagmire and you know I've said it before and I'll say it again the Jordan decision which dealt with delay largely arose out of the change in Bill C two, which got rid of evidence to the contrary and backed up our courts for years. And I said it before; I told the Senate that um, you know this change uh, let the let the genie out of the bottle. We all found out about problems with breathalyzers as a result of it. The, something we would never had, would have considered before, but it also led to impaired driving cases going from. Three quarters of a day to you know the one we're doing right now is going to be six.
1: Yeah, it's a serious case though. But I know. I mean, but normally they're five.
0: I know. Well, it's like three days is a is a fairly short impaired driving. You get
1: time. you get judges who've been on the bench for a long time, and you try and tell them, oh yeah, well this is an impaired, so probably three days, and they look at you like you're insane because they. Forget that you have to basically now litigate every possible charter violation in order to stack up all of your, uh, breaches to try and argue in favor of exclusion because we lost the automatic exclusion from Stillman. We lost, you know, the evidence to the contrary and, and everything became much more difficult after, um, Saint-Ange-Lamaroux as far as the instrument operation and even from last week from Cyr Langlois things became more difficult as far as proving and the evidence you have to adduce. Your case becomes naturally longer if there's a problem with the observation period because you need to bring in expert evidence or have your client testify, which means let the Crown close their case and then call a defense case as opposed to just getting it out through the cross-examination of the main investigating officer on a one-witness case.
0: This is now a quagmire. (laughs) It's a quagmire. They're just making it worse. if If you
1: want to reduce delay... Don't give defense lawyers more shit to make a big argument about. Well, I
0: mean, I know a lot of lawyers would just, you know, skip over most of the charter arguments if they felt the client was innocent. They had the client had a receipt that they had two glasses of wine. You know, a couple went out and had two glasses of wine. They would run that argument and that would be the end of it. And if they were disbelieved, that was fine they were you know the person was convicted and if the person was believed then they were acquitted and that was you know that is when you could finish an impaired driving case in three quarters of a day the police officer testifies your client testifies uh toxicologist testifies the judge makes a decision as to whether or not they believe the person she goes
1: uh you know i believe uh the officer but the evidence of the accused leaves me with a reasonable doubt
0: yeah or they say I you know I've heard the evidence of the accused he was cross-examined by the by the um, by crown counsel and I've come to the conclusion that the evidence isn't reliable I accept the evidence of the police officer and um, and therefore I'm you know convicting him
1: but <laughs> the, I mean the notion that now we're going to have to sort out literally the retrospective application of every I mean if if you win every for, aspect example, they're relying for on. example if I have a case coming up where the person blew into an ASD and the court determines the officer didn't have a reasonable suspicion to do the ASD does the no reasonable suspicion requirement retroactively apply? Is it a defense? Is it a substantive thing, or is it procedural? Is it merely just the procedure roadside?
0: That's the only one I think is fairly easy, and I think it's because it's procedure that it is automatically because it's the it's the authorization the, the police loss, officer had it's at the time. The is it's
1: procedure; it's retrospective. But it's the
0: authorization the police officer had at the time to conduct a search. But I'll tell you right now, there will be. Prosecutors in the country who take that position.
1: I've and already said, had prosecutors tell me that they're planning to take that position. I don't know why they're planning okay. on you know
0: I, I just assumed it was absurd, but I assume you know I but often
1: the other problem <laughs> is shocked
0: by the absurdity of
1: it all. The other problem is that lots of these trials were set prior to Bill c46 being passed. And so at the time that trial time estimates and decisions were made, about all of that. Nobody knew (laughs) that they were going to have to argue retrospective application of like 14 different sections of the criminal code and have to sort out each one of those sections individually. So what happens to the time estimates? Are we talking about this is now an exceptional circumstance that the government changed the law and couldn't coordinate a good you know, position to instruct their counsel and communicate that to defense as soon as the law passed, what their position would be and uh, set aside appropriate court time for the determination of those issues? Or is it is it an exceptional circumstance um, because the law changed and, and we have to sort that out and, you know, the government didn't have the foresight to write better transitional provisions? Well,
0: let me tell you about what happened with Bill C-2, which was, you um sort of an interesting thing that might be instructive here so when c2 came out a lot of the lawyers thought you know what i'm going to just put this thing off uh until we get some decision from a higher level of court on Mm -hmm. retrospective application and the judges looked at it and said well no i think we're going to have to go ahead and i'll i'll make a decision myself or you know this is what we've decided in our courthouse so they didn't get suspended um You know, a lot of lawyers were doing everything to try and buy some time to get some direction from the court. Um, But in this case, we are going to all be fighting those same issues all the time all over the country because they're not going to just put them on hold. Why? Because of Jordan.
1: Well, (laughs) also, Paul, one of the things they did have the foresight to write transitional provisions about is what happens to your Section 259 automatic driving prohibition if you appeal your conviction and the stay of the section 259 driving prohibition pending an appeal. So they contemplated that defense lawyers were going to argue this, that transitional issues were going to become a thing, and they made it more difficult for people to get stays of the consequences of their convictions on appeal Well, they're trying to sort out whether they were convicted under the law that applied at the time they were arrested or the law that existed after they were arrested. So
0: they're just trying to break people. Yes, they are. They're just trying to crush people. And it just makes me sick that this is the way our legislators think, that this is the way that the people who drafted this legislation think. It's inhumane. It's contrary to our concept of being Canadian. It is cynical. It's bad faith. And it stinks.
1: Yeah, well, those provisions are probably likely the first to be challenged because you're going to have...
0: You've got cons- to get convicted first, though.
1: Yeah, but the constitutionality of all of this other stuff is going to take time. But a conviction in one of those circumstances where people are trying to put it off and appeal and wait the outcome of other cases, somebody's going to have to argue whether or not you're entitled to a stay pending that appeal.
0: I'm concerned greatly about the ability to finance all of these challenges and I mean I know that we're looking at at financing some of them ourselves but the I can tell you the impaired driving lawyers across the country are largely tapped out from what I've seen. I mean we've been fighting no we've been fighting no tapped out of money not tapped out of spirit
1: oh um (laughs) i was like i'm not tapped out i'm tapping in
0: (laughs) no but you know like 15 years ago 20 years ago it was a quite a profitable thing to fight impaired driving cases and it's not because it's 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 hard for people to be able to finance it i mean our fees are not have not gone up with inflation at all nope and the ability to be able to finance it ourselves out of our own pocket uh you know well, I suppose we'll scrape it together and I'll drive my old car for a few more years. But the, um, the, the ability to, to do that across the country, lawyers across the country doing that is not, I think, what it was when I started practicing.
1: No, absolutely not. Um, especially here in British Columbia, where the provincial government tried to kill the drunk driving industry. I mean, yeah. they didn't succeed. They just moved it to a different forum. But think about how many, how many lawyers you could name that were like specialists in impaired driving prior to IRPs, like no, criminal impaired driving.
0: There was a, there were a, a dozen in the province who were really quite good and at now? impaired driving cases, and another dozen who dabbled in it.
1: Yeah, and now you've got like
0: I, I a can't, handful. I can't really name anybody who does as much as you.
1: Well, no, but... And
0: there are a couple other people who are sort of in the game, but it's not, you know, we used to have the BC Impaired Driving Lawyers Association. Most of those people went on to become judges or, or yeah, something else. Yeah, they're all judges. Yeah. So we don't have that, you know, there's in the criminal bar, we don't have an impaired driving bar like we used to in in British Columbia.
1: Yeah, we have the Canadian Impaired Driving Lawyers Association. Really fine people.
0: Yes, but you know, even think of those people, they're they're all operating on shoestrings for their clients across the country because it is expensive, you know, back to the price, okay? So we're running now a three-day trial where when I started in, you know, 2000, we were done in three quarters of a day most of the time. I scheduled one-day trials, three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Um, and one would run a week. And of those, most of them would be done that day. And the fee was not much different than it is now. Now people have to pay for three days, and they're paying per day. I, get, you know, we have a continuation fee. It's a lower continuation fee, but it's again, it's like hard for us to make money. Uh, it's hard for our clients to pay for it. And now we're looking at a, a five to seven to, you know, day trial to deal with a bunch of constitutional issues where judges have to render decisions, and we have to come back and decisions come back. I, I just am.
1: And then we have to take those decisions up to the next level and the next level after that. Because remember, it's uh, an appeal to summary conviction appeals in B.C. Supreme Court and then the Court of Appeal and then the Supreme Court of Canada.
0: So financing these appeals is going to be a big problem.
1: If you are super loaded, like... A bajillion dollars, and you get an impaired. <laughs> and
0: you really want us to try and, and do really everything to correct the to law. You really want me
1: to run every argument. It would be nice to get paid for it for a change, but you know the reality is, I think that we're going to be scraping by for a while to try and do this. It's, I mean, it's an access the other thing to is justice digging issue. Digging
0: up the evidence too. I mean, yeah. you and I know about the evidence because we are in touch with experts around the world who who study. The technology and the science. Um, but digging up the evidence, especially, you know, when manufacturers are getting tighter and tighter and revealing information, uh, is going to be another um, difficult thing that, you know, has to be financed. Uh, it's it's really problematic. And I'm, I'm worried that they're going to get away with these dirty laws.
1: Well, I mean, you know, the government likes to point fingers at lawyers. We've been seeing that a lot lately, particularly in B.C., um, but even across Canada, we've been seeing the governments in Ontario point fingers at lawyers and say, you're the cause of this access to justice crisis. You're too expensive. Legal fees are too high. No ordinary person can afford $600 an hour. Get real and, um, you know, make yourselves available to the little guy. And I know That you and I are not charging for the amount of hours we work anywhere close to $600 an hour.
0: That's what I'm supposed to be charging. I know, right?
1: Uh, Wouldn't it be nice? nice Yeah. I'd like to work like six weeks less a year, six weeks less a month. Uh, Yes, I'm working six weeks a month. Yeah. Uh, If you add up the hours. I'd like to not work 90 hour weeks.
0: I get you. I get it. I hear you.
1: Like I said, I'm bad at math. But no, it, it, and I find that so insulting because here we are and we're staring this legislation in the face that's. Designed to break people that thought through the transitional nature enough to make it more difficult to get your license while you're appealing the decision that you need to appeal in order to get clarity in the law to affect everybody else, including helping yourself potentially if you're not successful in your, in your argument about, uh, retrospectivity. And if you are, then the Crown's going to appeal. Um, and, They thought through it enough to make that more difficult for you, but they didn't think through it enough. She says very cynically. um, They didn't think through it enough to just write down what's retrospective and what's prospective and let the court deal with the constitutionality of that.
0: It would have just been so easy to make it all start from a certain date. No, no, no. Let's make it
1: about eliminating people's access to justice and let's just foist an unjust scheme on them.
0: Foisted. Foisted upon us. Yes. And somehow Canadian drivers uh, who are caught in this have to be the ones who finance the fight. Meanwhile, Mothers Against Drunk Driving are the wealthiest, most successful... uh, um, Lobby group. Lobby group uh, in North America. Uh, We should be able to have our own um, fundraising... Campaign in the liquor store, maybe a, you know, drop in a coin here yeah. right next to the mothers against Spare drug driving a one.
1: Fair buck for a drugstore. For, yeah. For, <laughs>
0: For law, for justice, we should have a justice bin, a
1: justice fund. Yeah, a justice fund. Like you can fund. donate to Mothers Against Drunk Driving, or you can donate to Acumen against bad drunk driving laws. Yeah,
0: I don't think the government's going to let us put uh, put our tins in by the till there. But
1: yeah, well, and, uh, I,
0: and I don't want to be looking for handouts. No, but.
1: we don't. Uh, no, I don't want handouts. I want to do this. I want to do it clean. I want to get it done, and I want to get it done quick. So at least I've got a year's worth of trials to do it.
0: It's gonna be hard to come up with the time. And it's also gonna be hard to to strategize. And the government's got unlimited lawyers to strategize, and we've just got, you know, us and our small group.
1: Well, Paul David and Goliath. To me, you're ten lawyers.
0: I'm not ten lawyers. I may have a multiple personality
1: <laughs> issue
0: to some extent. No, I I, I mean to be dying? Nice. I've been thinking <laughs> no, I've been thinking lately that like I know too much about some things that it makes it hard for me to separate my issues the way I used to do it. When I used to run impaired driving trials, I would pick my my four things. I used to tell you I had I had three substantial issues. I had one that was a red herring. I would uh I would hold back one, I would tell the crown three, one of them was the red herring. I was surprised how often the red herring would lead to a deal. Um, but the, you know, now it's to the point where I was like, there's so many issues for me. There's so many aspects. It's actually hard for me to sort out. And I've noticed that my, you know, it, 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 I don't have the skill you do when it comes to figuring out which is the one that I got to focus on. So I'm impressed with that skill that you have. I'm saddened that I've lost the skill, but I don't think I've lost the skill because I'm, I'm less smart, I think I've lost the skill because I'm uh, I'm more cynical about the process and I have trouble separating what should be a defense from what is a defense.
1: Oh yeah, like you're the dude where if you open up your closet... In the middle of a trial you've got all these magazine cutouts and headlines and red thread connecting all of them
0: yeah and and like felt pen lines and <laughs> yeah. things like that yeah yeah it's my it's actually the just the whole my whole secret uh office in the basement um i've got dim lights that sway like hanging yep. from yeah
1: yeah exactly and uh and that's fine Because... There's
0: half-eaten food all over the place and there's... yeah.
1: You know what? Your cynicism and your conspiracy theories are necessary and maybe not so crazy as some people on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and et cetera make them out to be.
0: No. I think that, um, you know, I I know my stuff. Um, It does make me angry. It... um, I don't always... um, it does make me frustrated, and I worry that people don't understand that it comes from a sense of frustration from the knowledge that I have, and my knowledge is soundly based. It's it's well grounded. I've been researching this for close to twenty years.
1: Sure, but
0: I still come across as crazy sometimes. Yeah,
1: sure. I know where you're going and where you're coming from, but you do you know too much. Unfortunately, none of us know what the courts are going to rule when it comes to retrospective or prospective application and how we're going to sort it out and what province is going to say what and what courthouse is going to say what and what judge is going to say what. And we've got years ahead of us sorting all of this out when we thought that the Supreme Court of Canada had sort of put that to bed indignantly and now the Crown is telling us, nope, we're going to argue it again.
0: And by the way, we all get to pay for it. (laughs) Woo-hoo, your, <laughs> screw you taxpayer your
1: tax dollars at work yeah. not, not only do not you for pay, the criminal
0: lawyers not,
1: not only do you pay taxes to pay for the crown to run these arguments that should have been sorted out in 2012 but you also have to pay your lawyer to run them to protect you
0: which is the small part compared to what the, the taxpayers are paying for all the courthouses and all the judges to hear all of these arguments don't and forget shouldn't even have been sorted out in 2012 All they had to do was write a simple provision in both cases and say it starts as of that day and doesn't apply to cases where people were arrested prior to that date.
1: Anyway, this discussion has taken longer than I anticipated. So we're going to have to leave our third topic, which (laughs) is how cars in British Columbia and Toronto and Canada are connected potentially to international terrorism.
0: Oh, Sam Cooper's.
1: Thing. Yes. Yes. Um, but we will come back to that because that's a story that's not going away um, another day. And you can tune in to a new episode of Driving Law every Friday without fail um, by checking out our podcast on iTunes. Please rate us um, or SoundCloud or Player FM or all the other podcasting things. And, and
0: hello to our regular listeners. Uh, there's the students at uh, UBC Law. Uh, Brandon in our office and we don't know if there's somebody else as a regular listener, you know, send us a direct message or an email or something like that. Uh, You know, you can always give us a call, say hi.
1: Yep. And our number is 604-685-8889 and uh, you can find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com. Tune in next week for more Driving Law.